I am so excited about these next few moments because it is an absolute core passion of mine to develop and train preachers. Um, I love preaching. I could preach every week. If you wake me up at 3 a.m. and say, preach, Chris, I'll give you a sermon. And so it's in me. However, I love the fact that in our church, we have some really strong preachers. If you don't know, many of the folks that preach on Sunday beside me, they just don't preach here. Uh, God uses them in various other settings and churches that uh, so it absolutely blesses my heart to know that our church is not just preaching the word for our community, but that God is using the preachers in our church to bless the broader body. And today is a special day because today is the very first Sunday sermon of our dear brother Daniel Choi. Um, Dan yes, yes, yes. I love it. Daniel, Daniel is, is kind of unreal. I still am not fully believing that he's a real person. I feel like it's a dream um, because he's just, his, his humility, his character, his kindness, um, but also his love for scripture, his love for the word. He is also someone who God uses and, and he's preached in other churches. And so um, I may not be the smartest, but I'm no dummy. And I found out that he preaches. I was like, hey, send me some sermons. I want to see how you're doing. And I went, oh, okay. He's definitely going to preach in our church. And so I am so excited for him to preach and bring the word and continue our sermon series. Would you give Daniel Choi a warm Hope Astoria welcome as he brings the word? Thank you. Thank you um, for that. I have no idea how to follow that. I'll start by saying that I am Daniel, and it is just an honor and a privilege to share the word of God with you. And I can s continue on and say how thankful I am to Pastor Chris and, your, and the church for the past three years for sustaining me, for helping me just flourish. Um, but then the 30 minutes will be over and I'll get the hug. Uh, so why don't we just get started? And if you have your Bibles, we're now in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. <clears throat> And it starts, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow... For the day is its own trouble. 
immune to technical difficulties. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day where we get to come and worship you. Lord, we just ask your Holy Spirit to come and encounter each and one of us because we seek a transformation that is deep and lasting. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our God, our rock, and our redeemer. I'm an immigrant. My family lived in Argentina for a long time, and when I was 13, we were ready to move to America. And I was already learning about American culture by watching episode and episode of Beverly Hills 90210. Right? I was like, I got this. So I got to my dad, I got a magazine, pointed at a picture, and I said, Dad, when we get to America, can I get this 1995 purple convertible Toyota Celica? My dad said, yes, of course. Quickly revealing that yes, of course, to him meant something totally different than to me. I was ready. America, I'll come. I know what it takes to be an American. I know what I want. And I'll be one of you. I was moving from a totally different culture to another. Earth-shifting journey, right? Leaving my childhood friends behind, the communities that I'd grown to love. But I knew in my heart that if I had this one car, this purple convertible, everything would be okay. We all have something that we want. We have desires for things that will make our lives better. And these things evolve as we get older. Maybe it's not a convertible. Maybe it's not a house. But maybe they take shape in the form of a partner that loves you, that understands you. Maybe you want a family that's growing, a career that pays well, and gives you some level of fulfillment. Maybe it's a job or responsibility that makes you feel like you're doing something in this world, something good. We all have something that we want. We have a picture of what a flourishing life looks like. And we want that. And so what do we do? We make plans. We make plans to get what we want. And when our journey doesn't go by the way of our plans, what happens? We start to worry. We start to get anxious. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that oftentimes what we want becomes what we need. Have you wanted something so bad that you said to yourself, I need that. I need that to be happy. I need that to be fulfilled. And so what happens quickly? When you don't get what you want, what you need, we start to worry. So here Jesus, what he does is deconstructs this passage, right, and says that maybe what we need to do is change what we want in order to change what we seek. Last week, Donald shared a word with us about treasures in heaven, right? 
He says, don't store up treasures here where moth and rust destroy and thieves steal, but store up treasures in heaven because that's where your heart desires should also be. And having made such a point, Jesus continues and says, don't be anxious. What does that reveal first? It reveals that you and I are an anxious people. From moment to moment, week to week, right? We worry and we are concerned about many things. Maybe it's an issue at work, an issue at home, the well-being of your family. Maybe it's relationships or friendships. There are many things that cause us concerns, cause us worries. And Jesus is addressing them by first saying, don't be anxious. In fact, in this passage alone, these few verses, he says that five times in different forms. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about life, what you will eat or drink. Don't be anxious about your body, what you will wear. Jesus is clearly saying, do not be anxious about your material security, about your comforts, whether it's not having enough of it or whether it's wanting more of it. Either state makes you vulnerable to being anxious. And I have been in both states of not having enough or believing that I did not have enough. And even though financial insecurity, the material lack is a hard place to be in, the mental and the emotional disposition that comes with it is even more crushing. Yet Jesus says, don't be anxious. Isn't life more than food? Isn't life more than clothing? You worry about the things that you can buy and touch, the things that you need to pay off, the things that give you comfort and security. But Jesus repeats, isn't life more than that? The body more than that? Although this much is clear. If you were at any point struggling with these things, with financial insecurity, with desires to want more, and someone came and said, don't be anxious, life is more than that, you will give them a wicked side eye and say, move on, because that is not comforting. That just doesn't help. But Jesus does move on, right? In verse 26, he says, look at the birds of the air. And you can picture him as he's standing on the mound, right, preaching. And he's pointing to the birds flying above him and above all his followers who are listening to him. He says, look at them flying in the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, but the Father feeds them all. How could the Father not care for you? How could the Father not care and feed you? The birds don't plan or strategize or work the way you do, which is a worthwhile thing. God cares for them, and he cares for you. The birds, they're not lazy, you see. They don't just go and open their beaks and wait for the Father to just hand feed them. They go, they search for food, they hunt for food, they work for their food, but Jesus still says the Father is feeding them. 
And so why do we say grace before we eat? It's because we want to acknowledge that even the food that is on our table by the sweat of our brows and the work of our hands is the provision of God's care and love for you. This illustration for me also points to the purpose of birds, right? I was thinking, Jesus, why are you using this illustration as the birds are flying in the air? And I, I thought, well, the birds serve a purpose, right? They have an ecological purpose where they pollinate, they disperse seeds, they uh, maintain certain rodent populations. They have a certain purpose, but I believe Jesus used this illustration because birds, in its essence, they exist to fly. Their purpose is to adorn the sky and help us imagine what it's like to soar in the clouds. You know, Isaiah says that even youths, they fall, and, and even young people fall and stumble. But those who hope, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strengths, and they will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. Birds, right, they exist to fly and help us imagine what it's like to soar like them. And a bird that can't fly is not living up to its design. Jesus says, are you not much more valuable than birds? Look at the birds in the sky that are fulfilling their design and purpose, and God cares for them. You, who I made you, you whose purpose is far higher and far loftier than these birds, how will the Father not care for you? Verse 27, Jesus continues and says, so why be anxious? It's a rhetorical question, right? Why be anxious? There's nothing you can do by being anxious. It's, in fact, it is counterproductive. The time and energy you spend being anxious and worried could be time spent praying and asking and hoping. For one cannot hope and worry at the same time. You know, worrying, being anxious, I think it's like a planner's dilemma, right? You want something, you plan for it, you don't get it, so you worry. President Obama, when he was in the White House, he said that he had three suits that he alternated between, right? Because he had so many things to decide on that he did not want to worry about what he was going to wear. There's not much space for much else when we worry. Worry leaves little room for hope. Worry leaves little room for faith. In his first illustration, he points to the birds in the skies and says, look. And now in verse 28, he points to the lilies of the field and says, consider them. Consider how they grow, how they neither toil nor spin. But even Solomon in all his glory was not dressed like one of these. If you were a Jewish person in the first century and you were concerned with material things, I think Solomon would be a hero that you want to look up to, 
right? He had wisdom and understanding that beckoned queens from distant countries to come and behold. He had wealth and riches that was so vast and splendor, so great that all his neighboring kings were jealous of, right? If you were a first century Jewish person, you wanted to be like Solomon. Solomon had also many wives, and maybe, maybe this is the reason, but you understand that when Solomon got dressed, he looked nice, right? <laughs> He had beautiful robes fit for a wealthiest king. Yet Jesus says, even in all his glory, Solomon was not dressed like one of these. Let's have some perspective. If you've gone outside of the city into nature sometime, right, maybe you saw an insta-worthy sunset and you stopped, and you looked at it. And in that moment, all your worries and cares of the world, right, the busyness of the city, just, in a sense, take a pause. They dissipate. They cease to exist. Jesus says, it's not just a matter of perspective. It's reality. These lilies are dressed more beautifully and the wealthiest king of Israel. The greatest fashion designer couldn't do better than the lily. And so if he dresses the grass of the field with such beauty, the, the lily, which is here one day and gone the next, how could the father not care for you? How could he not clothe you? And so in verse 31, Jesus again says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious by saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? In other words, Jesus is saying, don't go around and start making your own plans. Don't go around saying, what shall we do? What am I going to do about what I want, about what I need? When my dad said, yes, of course, and I realized, okay, he didn't mean that. I decided I need to make a plan. I need to get this car. So, you know, I decided to work. But it's a futile effort because I'm 13 in a foreign land, no real language skills, no real work skills. Um, but my desire had taken shape, and therefore it became a need, and then I wanted to make a plan to get it. We naturally do that, don't we? We have plans. We have contingencies. And so when we're worried about certain things, like finances, we get a side hustle. When we're worried about our relationship status, we get an online dating apps. When we're worried about our kids' schooling, we get a tutor. We, we have contingencies. We have solutions to our daily worries and, and concerns. And as we go through life, we accumulate more desires. We accumulate more plans and therefore more needs and more worries. There are more things to be anxious about, right? Someone once said that more money, more problems, right? <laughs> more things, more worries. 
That's what we do. We're good at turning our desires into necessities. So we get good at dealing with these worries that come with the cares of the world. In a world of constant media consumption, right, there's so much speed and, and productivity and there's a message that we consume each day without even knowing it sometimes. And it says that we should want more. We ought to be more. We can do more. We can be richer. We can be more beautiful. We can be fitter. We can be more productive. We can be more self-fulfilled. And the world also gives us the belief that we can achieve these things. And oftentimes, it gives us the power and the solutions to try to do that. For example, if you're worried about your body, right, and you are interested in getting fitter, it has a solution for that. Love yourself more. I was listening to this commercial the other day on the radio, and it started with a question. It said, you know why you can't skip, or you can stick to an exercise regimen? It's because you are too hard on yourself. You ask yourself, why did I eat that? Why did I not go to the gym? And so the guy says, stop. Stop beating yourself up. You got to love yourself more. So a beach body... We can help you get in shape by helping you love yourself more. We have a solution for what you need. However wacky, we can help you. But Beachbody is just a gym. We get stuck, right, in a cycle of wanting more, needing more, worrying more, and once we find the solution, we move on to another cycle of wanting other things, needing other things, and worrying about other things. Our needs are many, but our desires are far greater and have far more power over us. Augustine says that desire and the continual renewal of desire is part of our human nature. And often the problem is that those desires fall on objects that distract us from our chief desire and longing, which is our desire for God. So Jesus in verse 32 says, Gentiles seek after these things. They seek after these temporary things, these objects, food, shelter, protection, love, success, belonging, purpose, and we find ourselves oftentimes next to them, traveling the same journey, seeking after the same things, worrying after the same things. And so I want to ask Jesus, isn't it normal? Isn't it the condition of my heart as a human being to want these things, to want to have these things? Yes, he says, but that's why you're always anxious. You who will follow me. Go be different and seek for greater things. And what is that? Verse 33, he says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Instead of these pursuits that everyone else is after, pursue goals of far greater significance. You who were made for far greater purpose than that of the birds and the lilies. You seek 
for more. You were made to want more. You were made to be dissatisfied by earthly things. And so whenever you feel stuck in life, dissatisfied where you are, it's not because you don't have enough things, but it's because you don't have enough God. So seek the things that ultimately will fix you, will heal you, will complete you. In a way, seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness means seeking a place, right? The kingdom of God is a place, and that is under God's sovereign rule. So the prayer that he taught us a chapter ago, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is a place. It means that we're ushering this kingdom here on earth, a kingdom that has his values, a kingdom of hope, of beauty, of goodness, of love. And in that place, we find a life that is content, not because it has more things, but because it has more of God. And so here is the open secret. We are now living in that kingdom. We are living in the kingdom of those values. Why? Jesus in Luke 17 says, the kingdom of God is among you. He has already inaugurated it. So we find ourselves to be agents of ushering this kingdom and his righteousness wherever we go. We steward the earth where the birds fly and the lilies grow. We go forth and bring justice and equality. We do all these things with the fierceness, fierceness and the gentleness of Christ's character. And we continue to love others just as Christ loved us. These are all kingdom values. Martin Luther King Jr. said that life's most pressing and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? This is a kingdom issue, right? James Hunter is a Christian thinker. He says that when we are saved by God with faith in Christ Jesus, we're not only saved from sin, but we're saved in order to finish the task that was mandated at creation, right? To foster, to cultivate a world that honors God and reflects his character and glory. So this, this mandate, this, this mandate of plan of redemption has deep implications in our daily lives, in our work life, right? In our family, in our relationships, in our civic duties, These are kingdom values. But before we get there, I want to pause and say, before we go and love others more and do for others what Martin Luther King Jr. would say, right? what are we doing for others? And before we go and try to love ourselves more, just like Beachbody wants us to do, because I'm sure we all can learn to love ourselves better, I think we need to pause and say, how do we love God more?
we cannot love ourselves. We cannot love others more unless we love God more. Jonathan Edwards says that love to God, from love to God springs love to men. Why? The love of God fills you. If your heart is full of love, it will find vent, he says. You will find or make ways enough to express your love in deeds. When a fountain abounds in water, it will spring forth streams. Let's be full of God's love. Love of self, love of others, love of the world. It all begins with love of God. Love God. Desire God. Why? Why? Because we seek after what we desire. Let me turn back to the illustration of the lilies. Um, Jesus says that they're here one day and burned in an oven the next day. That is a fiery, vivid image. Burned the next day in an oven. And I find this image meaning in the beginning and the end. The word oven is used metaphorically in the Bible to, to signify the end times, right? But the picture of a clothed grass takes me to creation. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and took out the fruit and ate it, they quickly realized that they were naked. So they went and sowed fig leaves to cover themselves up. That sounds very much like us, doesn't it? When we are in lack, when we are ashamed, we're quickly to go and cover ourselves up with whatever we can. This we have inherited. This human instinct we have inherited from Adam and Eve. But later in that chapter, we find that <clears throat> God tells them of the consequences of their sin and expels them from the garden. But knowing that fig leaves would not do in the harshness of the world, what does God do? He clothes them with garments of skin. Even after Adam and Eve disobey God and create enmity with him, God cares for them and clothes them. He clothes them with a garment of skin, a reminder that their sin had deadly implications, deadly consequences. This was the first sacrifice. In the same way, our sin has deadly consequences too. Yet God cares for us and clothes us, not merely with garments of skin, but in Christ's righteousness. This is how much he cares for us. This is how much he loves us, that he would clothe us with his righteousness by shedding his blood, by making him the ultimate sacrifice. And in a way, it's, it's ironic because Jesus is preaching these words, right? Seek his kingdom and his righteousness when he's the person whose death and resurrection would make that all possible will make possible our capacity to desire him, to want him, to chase after his character, his values, because he first loved us, he first chased us. This is the gospel, isn't it? When our desires and our needs 
take over and displace our desire for him, when our hearts lead us miles away from his presence, he still comes and beckons us, come seek my kingdom, seek my greater things, because you were made for a far greater purpose. Seek my things, because only there will you find true satisfaction. And so when this gospel takes root in your hearts, it transforms us, it, it helps us, it, it teaches us how to love God. And when that happens, all these other things, all the things, all our desires, all our plans and our needs, and the anxieties and the worries that come with them, they take their rightful place. Now let's get real because Jesus gets real in the last verse. His mantra is not, don't worry, be happy. Right? He acknowledges that life has its troubles. Sufficient for the day, it's its own trouble. But he says, don't be anxious for tomorrow. When you seek my kingdom, when you seek my righteousness, you will find that all your desires, that all your plans, that all your needs, that all your words will be flipped upside down. That you will not longer be subject to the power of objects and temporary things. You will no longer want that purple convertible. You will no longer want that house. You will no longer want that family and all these things in such a way that they have power over you. So instead of worry, have faith for today and hope for tomorrow. For the kingdom of God is already here and already you are clothed with his righteousness. Let's pray. And as we get ready to pray, I want to share with us just a quote from one of my favorite books and movies of all time, The Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> There's a part early in the book where Frodo, Sam, Mary, and Pippin, uh, they leave the Shire at great danger and cost to themselves. And they go on this journey to fulfill this mission, right? And after some scary encounters, they finally get to Rivendell, the land of the elves, a place of beauty, goodness, and power. Tolkien says it's a refuge for the weary and the oppressed. But here's the quote. For a while, the hobbits continued to talk and think of the past journey of the perils that lay ahead, but such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell, that soon all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have any power over the present. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each good day as it came, taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song. Seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness is a little bit like the man of the elves, like Rivendell. 
your plans, your desires, your needs, and your worries, and the fear and anxiety that come along with them, they take their rightful place when you're there. And they have no power over you. Instead, kingdom values find their place in you. And you are able to find contentment for today and hope for tomorrow. Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are and we thank you because your grace is sufficient. And when we find our place in you, when our desires find their satisfaction in you, it displaces everything else. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And it doesn't say that you will get everything, right? Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your desires, will guard your plans, your worries, and your anxieties. So let's spend a moment just in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let whatever anxiety you have, let them be made known to God. And ponder the greater kingdom valleys that are possible because Christ's righteousness clothes you and his kingdom is already here.